Hey everybody, thanks for joining me. I've got a great stream with a great guest. I think you're really gonna enjoy this afternoon. Now we've talked a lot about the criminalization of political dissent here in the United States. And there have been, of course, a lot of developments about that recently. One of the best people on this, someone who has been just doggedly reporting on this on a regular basis, has been the senior writer over at American Greatness, Julie Kelly. Julie, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So this is a story that really isn't popular for a lot of people. A lot of people inside the conservative media, a lot of conservative politicians, many people don't want to continue to focus on this. Why have you been so committed to following up on the events of January 6th and others uh, where Americans have been prosecuted for their attempt to voice their disagreement with the American government? So I often say to myself, what did I do to deserve this? Like be the person mostly responsible for covering January 6th from the very beginning. But I just sort of, when I watched what happened on January 6th, I just did not have the same reaction as most people did. I thought it looked very suspicious to me. Um, that's just not how Trump supporters behave. Um, we knew that there was going, something was going to happen. Um, but certainly not what unfolded before our very eyes. So as I started reporting on the events of that day, how the media was covering it, um, what I really started to dig into was what the Department of Justice was doing in terms of threats to uh, hunt down, investigate, charge and prosecute anyone who had been involved in the events of January 6th. And I was shocked to learn that the Department of Justice then had switched hands over to Joe Biden's appointees, um, was seeking what's called pretrial detention, basically denying bail for January 6th defendants, even those accused of low-level offenses or nonviolent uh, charges. So that really shocked me. And that is, I think, what started to uh, uh, motivate my, co my early coverage of the January 6th prosecution. Yeah, I think a lot of people early on in kind of that fog of war period, you know, the media is covering things as they're happening. No one's exactly sure what's going on. You hear about police officers being killed and there's all kinds of violent groups involved. And it's very easy in that moment, uh, the moment of fear and chaos for the media and for bad actors inside the government to uh, kind of advance a lot of narratives and then over time, we found that there's been a lot of vindication for people like you who have continued to cover this, that many of these stories kind of fall apart under different scrutiny. And I think what's really worried people, of course, has been the very different reactions between, say, the violent and often riotous protests over the deaths of George Floyd and the related BLM and Antifa actions across the United States for months and then the actions that were taken against Trump supporters in what seems like a situation where the government was more than willing to apply a very in, uh, dangerous double standard. In fact, one that's not so much a double standard as the establishment of two different justice systems, depending on whose political or loyalty or who you owe political loyalty to. That is exactly right. So I think as I started reporting on January 6th and the feedback, you know, really was not anything early on except you're a traitor, you're an insurrectionist, uh, you're a domestic terrorist, why are you defending these people? But what really um, started to impact people 
was seeing this huge disparity between how the rioters of 2020 were, you know, celebrated, they were bailed out by politicians, they were heralded in the media as social justice warriors. Um, and of course, a lot of that conduct was far worse, death, destruction, $2 billion at least in, in property damages than anything that happened on January 6th. And the biggest comparison is what happened in Lafayette Square, which is where you had rioters occupying parts of Washington, D.C., federal property, attacking federal police officers with weapons um, on this federal property, prompting the shutdown, of course, of the White House, as everyone recalls, and Donald Trump really and his family having to go to a secure location because these rioters were attempting to jump over the fence. They wanted to attack the White House. Um, and so nothing like that happened on January 6th. But yet these people are being treated far differently. And I still think that that is what offends the senses of Americans. Yes, they want people who were engaged in violent behavior, especially assaulting police officers on January 6th. They want those people held accountable. But by the same token, they want the rules to apply to everyone. And that um, simply is just not the case. We have an out of control, vengeful, weaponized Department of Justice criminalizing political dissent. Uh, and continuing to do so now, now more than 26 months later. I want to get further into the criminalization of dissent, especially when it comes to the federal departments that seem to be driving some of the action behind the scenes. We'll talk about kind of your reporting on what's happening with the Proud Boys and uh, their trial here in just a moment. But before we do that, guys, let's hear from today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. The Intercollegiate Studies Institute is a conservative nonprofit dedicated to educating the next great American. ISI understands that conservative and right of center students feel isolated on college campuses and compelled to defend their reputation and dignity while seeking to carve out a brighter future. ISI has a variety of different content, events, internships, and fellowships geared towards helping students and opening up career opportunities. ISI offers graduate students and entry-level journalists the opportunity to receive fellowships and secure internships. Nate Hockman, who's been a guest on this show multiple times, got his start at National Review through ISI, and he's just one of many journalists and academics who were able to start their careers with the help of ISI. This spring, ISI is going to be hosting a debate between Michael Knowles and Deidre McCloskey on the subject of transgenderism that will be live-streamed on YouTube. In the fall, everyone's favorite Fox News host, Tucker Carlson, will be giving the keynote address at ISI's annual gala. On all issues, both economic and cultural, ISI wants their students to know that they're not shying away from the problems facing our country, because in letting the left win is a pathetic way to watch civilization die. To learn more, check out ISI.org. That's ISI.org. You can follow the link down below in the description of this video. So I think a lot of people are learning more and more again about the very concerning cover up of many of the events and the, the, the spinning of narratives around, around January 6th. But what's also very concerning for a lot of people, people who themselves would like to be involved in making their voices heard, is how much of the federal uh, government seems to be involved in pushing different groups towards possible violent situations or towards situations in which they could have you know, bad optics and possibly be prosecuted by the United States government. One of those, of course, is the Proud Boys in many ways have become infamous because of 
this scenario, but from your reporting, it looks like the FBI and the DOJ have been heavily involved in uh, possibly shaping the events, especially, of course, the narrative around what's going on with the Proud Boys to the point where it's even in interfering with the uh, trials of different members of the Proud Boys because there are so many informants involved, they can't even seem to get uh, witnesses. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on with these trials? So the Proud Boys, you have five members of the Proud Boys, including um, it's not not founder, but it's leader at the time, Enrique Terrio. Those five men have been charged with seditious conspiracy and other uh, felony and misdemeanor counts for January 6th. Um, only one man is accused of van vandalizing the building and using a riot shield to do so. The others do not face violent charges, such as assaulting police officers, bringing firearms, anything like that. Um, but they've sort of become the poster boys for the so-called militia groups that attacked the Capitol on January 6th, trying to overthrow the government. I don't know how you overthrow the government when you walk through an open door police officers standing right there and you don't have any weapons, but okay, no one's asking those questions in court. Um, but the revelations that are coming out and this started to trickle out in some of the motions is numerous FBI informants working with the FBI embedded in this group, either members of the group or embedded in the group, however you want to describe it, months before January 6th. Um, this is something that Judge Tim Kelly has tried very hard along with the government to conceal um, exactly those activities and who they were from, uh, from the jury. But now that the defense has its turn on the uh, stand this week is one man who was a proud boy and an FBI informant who breached the exterior boundaries of the Capitol grounds that day, who went inside the building and who was texting his FBI handler throughout the entire uh, throughout the entire day. Apparently what this man said is that there was no plan by the Proud Boys to at attack the Capitol. They were basically there as Proud Boys had been at rallies in DC and uh, in, in other places throughout 2020 uh, to help law enforcement and to protect them and to protect themselves and protect Trump supporters who had been attacked. Uh, in Washington, D.C. at previous rallies. Um, so at any rate, there were FBI informants involved. We found out bombshell last week that one of the informants uh, is sort of a proud boy groupie, for lack of a better word. She was hired by the FBI after January 6th. Um, she repeatedly communicated with defendants, with their relatives, met with defense attorneys, uh, constantly reached out to another defense attorney. Um, and so that revelation uh, disclosure was not revealed by the government until the night before this particular FBI informant was supposed to testify for the defense. Um, and so Judge Kelly, once again, did not think that that was problematic or scandalous. He said, we're not going to be able to bring that up in front of the jury um, because it seems like she really was sympathetic to the defendants. And there's no proof that she was being told to report on the defense team or no proof that she actually was. So another FBI scandal, you know, uh, shoved under the rug by a D.C. judge. But um, we are finding out more about these FBI informants, how many there were. We're going to find out more, I believe, as the defense uh, has their time in front of the jury. Um, and one defense attorney actually joked last week 
when they found out this defense witness was was an informant. Uh, judge, I just want to say for the record, I am not, nor have I ever been a CHS, which is confidential human source, which is the uh, official term for informant. So it's sort of becoming a punchline. But look, what it does is it really uh, fuels more suspicion by the American people that federal agents, assets, whatever you want to call them, were deeply involved in what happened that day. And that's why you have the Rasmussen poll that showed 61% of Americans think that federal assets provoked the so-called riot that day. Um, and so I think that this is why House Republicans are really being pushed to get the truth out, release the videos, get the records, and more importantly, debunk uh, the numerous lies that the January 6th Select Committee told the public uh, for almost two years. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that's happening. I was I was honestly a little skeptical that that, would, that we would see some traction there, but I'm very glad that that is taking place because you look at you know everything happened with the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping and then January 6th, and you have to ask, why is the FBI so obsessed with attempting to find a very particular type of political actor and kind of encourage them and push them and shape their plans or their actions in a way that's going to produce uh, a result that kind of hurts a political side. I mean, it's very difficult not to notice the language around this insurrection, right? Who is using that term ever before January 6th? Who's talking about insurrectionists before January 6th? No one was. But it feels like this language was very particularly picked by the media and by actors inside the federal government and politicians in hopes of activating like the 14th Amendment and the language against in, you know those who have led insurrections being able to run again. It really does feel like there's a very particular effort to manufacture specific legal language that would prevent someone like Donald Trump from being able to run for office for a second time. So all of this is associated with Christopher Ray's unsubstantiated claim that he made back in 2019 that domestic violent extremists, i.e. Trump supporters, uh, pose this lethal threat to, to the country, to the homeland. Um, and there's just simply no data to support it. Uh, any random act of violence, uh, any sort of mass shooting, they could tie the shooter to the right in any way was the only evidence that the FBI could come up with to, to support what Christopher Ray said. So what they really did is started venting these so-called domestic violent extremists. That's what they did in the Whitmer fednapping hoax, the plot uh, that was supposed to be these white supremacist militiamen loyal to Donald Trump who wanted to abduct and possibly assassinate Gretchen Whitmer in 2020. Turns out there were more FBI informants and undercover agents in that plot than there were actual criminal defendants, which is kind of how it's shaping up with the Proud Boys. The only difference with the Proud Boys is this group actually existed. Uh, and so it looks like FBI informants were either run into the group or existing members were kind of flipped to become informants. What happened in Whitmer was the FBI was centrally involved in stitching this group together. A lot of the defendants didn't know each other before the FBI got involved, hiring numerous informants, including the lead informant, uh, lead informant Dan Chappell, who was paid more than $60,000 in cash and prizes for putting this group together, luring them to certain organized events um, like field training camps and even taking them on so-called reconnaissance missions by Whitmer's cottage. She knew about this for months. 
Uh, she had the FBI installed poll cameras at her summer cottage so they could capture so-called evidence. But she knew what was going on. We don't know exactly what she knew or you know how much she was communicating with the FBI, especially that field office up there. Uh, coincidentally, the head of the Detroit FBI field office, after the arrests were announced in October of 2020, was promoted by Christopher Ray to take over the Washington field office, right. which then would have been, they, not only were they the lead investigative office looking into January 6th, but they would have had a very good handle on FBI informants, even the ones run out of various uh, FBI field offices across the country. So that man, Stephen D'Antuano, got a big promotion just weeks before January 6th. January 6th committee never interviewed him, never spoke with him, nor did they talk to Christopher Ray leaving so many open-ended questions about the FBI's, not just what the FBI did in January 6th, but it's kind of dry run of what Murra fed-napping hoax. So Ray is a Trump appointee, isn't he? Yes. So I, I, with that, you just have to ask the question, if you have an organization like the FBI or maybe the wider federal law enforcement system where even a Republican president can't find an appointee capable of running that organization that won't specifically target and persecute the Republican voter base with the intention of creating a storyline about domestic terror, with the intention of punishing political dissidents, what can you do in a situation like that where it seems like even those that might be selected by Republicans are captured by this machine? Well, I think he could have found easily other people to run the FBI. Uh, you know, Chris Ray is not some law enforcement genius. He had been in private practice. Uh, I think he represented Chris Christie, and Chris Christie is the one who recommended Chris Ray. It's not like he was a longtime FBI lawman or well-respected or well-regarded, kind of plucked out of obscurity. I think he worked in the FBI or DOJ years before. Um, but there was a reason that Christopher Ray got installed there, and now we sort of know why. But uh, and let's not forget who Christopher Ray's boss was, William Barr, the attorney general, also appointed by Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you had President Trump this week um, really dismiss concerns that he, first of all, appointed Chris Ray, kept him in power, even as he clearly saw that Christopher Ray was making stuff up about domestic violent extremists kind of trying to tie him to his own boss, Donald Trump. Um, but when uh, Donald Trump threatened to fire Chris Ray in the spring of 2020, Bill Barr threatened to resign. Now, let's think about how great, let's think about that lost opportunity. Yeah. Donald Trump should have fired both of them on the spot. His attorney general for threatening to walk if Chris Ray clearly politicized um, FBI director was fired within Donald Trump's purview to fire the FBI director, uh, that we could have gotten rid of both of them, really helped clean up that Department of Justice, especially in 2020 when it was doing nothing uh, with these riots, nothing to investigate election fraud, uh, and then certainly turned around 180 degrees and then targeting uh, uh, Trump supporters for January 6th. So big lost opportunity. I think Donald Trump needs to... Um, explain that a little bit more and not dismiss it as an, another huge personnel mistake that he made in, in hiring and keeping Chris Ray. 
Yeah, I think it's got to be a really essential part of anyone moving forward who's going to contend for leadership in the GOP, Mm -hmm. understanding that policies are great, but personnel are the ones that deliver those policies. And all the legislation and, you know, rhetoric in the world doesn't change the fact that decisions are made, unfortunately, at these bureaucratic levels that have devastating impacts. And so if if you're not putting a, a sufficient amount of careful attention into who holds those positions and why, then, you know, your own supporters could end up in, in, in jail for a very long time. Speaking of which, many of these uh, January 6 uh, defendants have been in jail for well over a year at this point with no trial doesn't seem to be uh, something that should be reasonable or legal can't set bell or anything at this point. Why haven't more GOP congressmen and other representatives involve themselves. We've had a few, thankfully, but far too few seem willing to step in and talk about the violation of constitutional rights that's very obviously occurring with a political bias in this situation. Yeah, I think it's really outrageous, the Republican silence through all of this. I mean, you don't deny someone bail when they're charged with obstruction of an official proceeding. You don't deny someone bail when they're charged with conspiracy, especially if they have no other violent charges with them and they have no criminal record. But this has been going on since January of 2021. And um, Republicans just did not want to touch this. They didn't want to be seen as defending anyone who pepper sprayed a police officer on January 6th, even though they were throwing stun grenades and uh, dousing people with tear gas, punching them, kicking them, using rubber bullets against them, pepper balls against them. These are people standing outside, by the way, this unprovoked attack by DC Metro and Capitol Police. Um, So uh, if you spray somebody with pepper spray, a police officer who's attacking you, you should be denied bail for more than two years. Um, You should be sentenced to prison for 71 months, like Julian Cater, the man who finally, after 18 months of being denied bail, suffering in the D.C. Gulag, was tormented into taking a plea deal, pleaded guilty to two counts of attacking Ryan Sicknick and two officers, and was sentenced to 71 months in jail. I mean, there's no case that's comparable. 32-year-old man is no criminal record, and he's going to rot in jail for now more than six years uh, if by this, because of this vengeful Department of Justice and these sadistic, I call them judges on the D.C. District Court. So, um, but what's more egregious of men who have been languishing behind bars uh, in custody, indefinite incarceration, as their trials uh, are pushed back. And some of these men, yes, have been in jail for more than two years, uh, while the DOJ plays every trick in the book to either get extract a plea deal out of them or um, push off their their trial dates. And when Merrick Garland was asked about it this week by Representative Andrew Clyde to explain why you have these men, at least a dozen, who have been held for two years or more, uh, you know, how is that constitutional? How is it legal? Uh, he, of course, had no idea what he was talking about, didn't know who the defendants were, said something about Sixth Amendment rights and, you know, go talk to the judge, basically. Well, okay, you can talk to the judge. The judge ultimately is the one who makes the decision, but it's your prosecutors, your Department of Justice, who puts together the motion seeking their pretrial detention, denying their release based on their involvement on January 6th. Uh, But Merrick Garland, as usual, had no response because, 
look, he's not really running the DOJ. That's Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, uh, and Matthew Graves, the D.C. U.S. attorney who's handling every single January 6th case. I mean, the Republican Party loves to talk about the importance of constitutional government. It's mm -hmm. so important to defend these amendments. It's so important to to make sure that you know the Constitution is upheld. But then when something very basic is threatening the constitutional rights of people who would be their supporters, they just don't seem to be found anywhere. And the question is, I guess at this point, do you even have constitutional rights if no politician, if no representative or very few of them is willing to step up and defend and put pressure to make sure that those rights are, are followed through? I mean, you really have to wonder if the Republicans aren't willing to put pressure on this because I don't know, they're, they're, they're worried about not being seen as the party of law and order, or they're just so cowed by the media narrative that any, any association with this will just destroy their ability to garner donors. Then what is the value of these people if they're not willing to push for the rights of their voters when they need them most? You know, this is one thing I asked repeatedly, uh, and I still do. What is the point of a political party who refuses to defend their own supporters, their own voters when they need them the most? You know, why are you talking about grocery prices? Why are you talking incessantly about school board meetings? Yes, we get it. that was egregious, but that's a done issue. Um, you still have men rotting in jail. Uh, political prisoners in the United States of America, that's exactly what they are. They are only there because they supported Donald Trump. They are only there because they protested Joe Biden's election on January 6th for no other reason. You couldn't point to any comparable cases. Um, and so what point is the Republican Party when they're not going to defend these people? And they would say, well, we don't want to look like we're defending anyone who assaulted police officers. Okay, fine. What about what the police officers were doing that day? Well, we don't want to look like we're defending anyone who's in a militia group. I would say, well, a militia group, the Oath Keepers, they're former veterans and police officers. They're there to protect people, too. And how do you have a militia when no one brought weapons to the Capitol? Well, we don't want to defend the Proud Boys. Well, why not? Because, what, they've been maligned by the New York Times or Rachel Maddow or Chris Ray says that they are members of uh, the Proud Boys are domestic terrorists. And these people are just gutless. And even up until this point, you still only have a small handful, and I will say basically no one in the United States Senate who's standing up against this. But you do have a handful of Republican House members. I think that group is growing, luckily. But it's too late for these men who have been in jail for two years. Right. Um, you know, they needed to step forward at, at the very beginning, every Republican. And I'll tell you who else is culpable, Republican governors and Republican attorney generals. Um, you know, Florida has the highest number of criminal defendants in January 6th. Uh, Texas, I believe, had the highest number of um, defendants under pretrial detention orders. You've heard nothing from Republican governors and Republican attorney generals. They have a duty to prote also protect the rights of their constituents who are being persecuted by this Department of Justice. They have been silent as well. So shame on pretty much everyone in the GOP uh, for their silence and their cowardice and, and continuing to say nothing um, as Matthew Grace threatens to round up another thousand defendants. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. And you can see it's only getting more ridiculous. You have people like Douglas Mackey on trial for 
posting memes. You have the FBI field offices talking about how you need to watch out for traditional Catholics who go to Latin mass. It's very clear that we have a security state apparatus that is out of control, highly politicized, and is looking to expand its purview into almost every possible part of American political life. And it really feels in a lot of ways like it was really important to bring the war on terror home, right? We kind of wrapped it up abroad and now it's time to turn that security apparatus on the American people because I think it's very clear to a certain part of the American elite that they're not doing a very good job, that people aren't going to be fans of the results that they're producing and they're losing the ability to kind of manufacture the kind of democratic outcomes that they want. Mm -hmm. And so it's really important to send a chilling message when it comes to political speech and in just basic involvement in civic and public life, that if you have the wrong political opinions, we have all these neat toys and all these techniques that and, and, and legal apparatus that we've set up around something like the war on terror and we're more than happy to turn it now and unleash it on you and don't worry the political party who's supposed to represent you the one that's supposed to restrain us they have no interest in fighting back against this either right exactly you know when i wrote the subtitle for my book that was published over a year ago and it was january 6th how democrats used the capital protest to launch a war on terror against the political right I remember my publisher and I were like, well, it might kind of be over the top. I said, well, it's actually happening, but it might sound a little crazy that that's it. But here we are. That's exactly what's happening. Every surveillance tool, you know, they're using the Joint Terrorism Task Force to investigate and arrest these people, even on misdemeanors. Um, you, They have full cooperation with American um, cooperation with American companies. I just read a criminal complaint that was filed against a woman, probably in her late 50s, early 60s, who went into the Capitol building for 15 minutes. Uh, she went in there with her elderly mother. They walked around and left. They committed no violence whatsoever. But um, they got her bank records from J.P. Morgan. They got her cell phone records from Verizon. Just like in every other case, they got social media activity from Facebook to build this complaint against a woman who is is facing misdemeanor trespassing offenses. So it's not a joke when we say that this is a war on terror because you have every powerful interest working together collaboratively um, to, to brand these individuals as domestic terrorists. And to your point, I think it's also because, you know, where is the war on terror? Where did it go? They certainly don't want to divert those resources to the southern border, where we know people have crossed over who are on watch lists. Um, so, you know, they, they need to put these these resources somewhere and they're putting them against Trump supporters uh, and, and continuing to do so. This investigation and prosecution will go on for years until hopefully the next Republican president, if he takes office. Uh, and shuts down some of these offices, dismantles the FBI. But this is their, this is a running campaign theme uh, and a running uh, crusade to criminalize political dissent in the Biden regime. Yeah, and you, you're really worried about even if a Republican would take up that cause at this point. I think it's got to be essential for everyone involved to hold anyone, again, who's interested in pursuing you know, leadership in the GOP to make this a top priority and something that they're, that, that they're very clear about the need to happen. 
And, and this seems to kind of show a, a wider concerning trend in just the Western world and liberal democracies in general. We see the actions of some of them, Betty, like Justin Trudeau in Canada, who is willing to steal the bank accounts mm -hmm. of not only protesters, but their families. Uh, in many cases, it seems like many of these states are more than willing to get up there and lecture Vladimir Putin and, uh, you know, any you know, dic dictators and other mm -hmm. nations about human rights abuses. But they're more than willing to commit very similar abuses, you know, with just, just slightly softer power in their own countries and pretend like there's a significant moral difference from uh, their security state and ones that they demonize across the globe. That's exactly right. I mean, look, when you turn powerful surveillance tools against American citizens, when you hold political prisoners in a special prison in the nation's capital, set aside just for uh, political dissidents, when you strip them of their rights, when you separate them from their families, when you deny their due process rights, when you keep evidence from them, um, when you bankrupt them, when banks, you know, banks are dropping, have dropped people just charged on misdemeanors, when you put them on a no-fly list, basically, mm -hmm. a domestic terror list where they have to spend hours at the airport going through multiple levels of security so they can be humiliated in front of their fellow countrymen. Um, tell me why we have to worry about Putin. Like he's probably looking at what we're doing and thinking, wow, I wish I could get away with that. I mean, yeah. that's why I think he mocked sort of the political prisoners in January 6th. Um, so anybody, anyone who thinks that anything Vladimir Putin is doing uh, is a bigger threat to what our own Department of Justice is doing. Uh, they're just not paying attention to, to what's happening. And so I think you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, the biggest threat to our country and how this is all, you know, unraveling so quickly uh, is coming right out of the powers that be in Washington. So I want to ask you one more thing that I think is really important for people. They're very worried right now. There's a lot of people, you know, you saw the, the call with uh, Donald Trump and uh, the possibility of asking people to protest on his behalf, mm -hmm. whether or not he would get charged in New York. However you feel about Donald Trump's action there. The call from a lot of people, myself included, is you have to be careful about public political action at this point. Mm -hmm. You have to be worried about exercising your very basic constitutional right to freedom of assembly because it's very clear that you have a government apparatus that is highly invested in trying to drive bad actors out and manufacture situations that they can then use to slander political dissidents and criminalize their acts. Mm -hmm. And when you're in a situation like this, where you just don't know how many FBI agents or informants or might or, or whoever else from the government might be trying to shape the events, try to drive things to a particular outcome, what can people do? How should people view political protests in an environment where they're not sure if the government is actively involved in trying to manufacture an excuse to punish them for their disagreement with the regime? Well, I think that's what was so um, in instructive about seeing the outcry when Donald Trump did post on on Truth Social uh, about this impending, it's not happening, it looks like, criminal indictment in New York and calling on people to protest. And you had the entire news media 
Democrats, you know, never Trump Republicans are saying, look, he's calling for another insurrection. He wants another attack on, you know, a, a government building. Um, he didn't say peacefully protest. He said protest. You know, he's trying to gin up another January 6th. So the, the anvil of January 6th, not just the horrific things that are happening uh, related to the, the prosecution, but the, the bigger anvil is to halt um, political protest and political activity. Things that, and, and of course, peaceful, because it's what, that's how the right acts, right? Um, but now the right is very wary of it, of course, to your point uh, about being lured into certain areas or having agitators and provocateurs there, uh, or even being on group chats with people. You know, this is how they got the Proud Boys and other people. Uh, they, they got them into these encrypted group chats and, and whatever that chatter is, even though it means nothing, that's the overwhelming bulk of evidence against these defendants. Um, so it is very terrifying uh, times. And um, so we'll see how this plays out in 2024. You see Trump still holding his rallies. Other people are going to rally. But if there is something that people want to protest, uh, again, um, they will immediately be condemned by, by the left and the news media as being, uh, you know, want to be insurrectionists. So this label is going to be around for a very long time. Yeah, it really does feel like the softer, slower version of a, of a communist, uh, you know, a police state where the, no one knows what the rules are. No one's clear about what their rights are. And at any time attempting to exercise something that you thought was just a basic constitutional right, everyone was entitled to, could immediately end up putting yourself in a situation where you're going to face years in prison without trial simply for being present present at something that the media or the government was able to manufacture. And it's just a, a terrifying situation for a lot of people. Very difficult. I understand a lot of people who want to take popular action, want to be out mm -hmm. and, and exercising their rights, but just, you have to, you have to understand the situation you're in before you make that decision for yourself. I think that's incredibly important. All right, Julie, well, I really appreciate talking with you. Could you tell everybody about, uh, your book and where to find your great reporting. Thanks so much. So my book uh, is available at Amazon and all of my work can be found at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. I'm on Twitter a lot, as you know, um, posting updates from trial proceedings or new motions that are coming out um, and then my own reporting. So that's uh, Julie underscore Kelly too on Twitter. Excellent, guys. Make sure that you're checking out all of Julie's excellent work. Thank you for coming by, everybody. If it's your first time on the channel, please go ahead and subscribe. And of course, if you want to catch these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you subscribe to the Oren McIntyre show on your favorite podcast platform. Once again, everybody, thanks for coming by. And as always, I'll talk to you next time.